2: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Joshua May. Dr. Joshua May is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at the University of Alabama in Birmingham uh, in the United States. He is the author of Regard for Reason in the Moral Mind, published by Oxford University Press and also the co-editor of Agency in Mental Disorder, again published by Oxford University Press in 2022. His latest book is called Neuroethics Agency in the Age of Brain Science, which is published by Oxford University Press. Joshua, thank you very much for accepting this invitation.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Morteza.
2: It's such a fascinating topic, neuroethics. And when I was reading the book, I came across, and I felt that it's it's related to to the medical science. It's related to neuroscience. It's related to philosophy. And even um, these days, there's a lot of talk about. Uh, artificial intelligence. So I could see some even connections with all those things. But before getting into the questions, can you please just very briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your field of expertise, what interested you in the area of philosophy and psychology? And what made you decide to write a book about neuroethics and human agency?
1: Sure. Yeah. Maybe there's almost too much to try to package into a neuroethics book. It's it really is interdisciplinary, which you know tickles my research interests because. You know, I teach in, in Alabama and in Birmingham as the heart of civil rights movement, and uh, you know Martin Luther King wrote his letter from Birmingham jail here. Civil rights is part of our identity, so I'm, I'm really interested in ethics and, and social change, um, but also science. I've always been fascinated by science, and these are fairly different fields in many ways. Philosophers ask these big abstract questions, and scientists are trying to gather really hard data, but These are just my two passions, and I've found a way to work them together. And uh, so anything at the intersection of ethics and science is is interesting to me. And uh, neuroethics is especially appealing to me, partly because we do have a big medical center here, and I teach a lot of medical ethics, and I I think a lot about it. Most of my students, they want to go to you know, med school or be involved in the health professions. So I've been teaching and thinking about that for a long time now. And we have a large neuroscience major and we have a lot of double majors in philosophy and neuroscience. And so it's been natural for me to think more and more about neuroscience in particular and what kinds of ethical issues that it raises. And so I've got this book. It's meant to be partly uh, maybe it could be used as an introduction to the field, but it's also very opinionated. Yeah, it has all of my own views in there. It gives a survey of, of some of the ethical issues there, but it's also my own take
2: on it. And the good thing about the book, I guess, is that when when you talk about some of the uh, uh, concepts, you also introduce some cases, case studies, legal cases, which which is really which I really thought uh, thought provoking because it's not really easy to, easy to kind of pass a verdict and say, well, yeah, this is right or wrong, and. Uh, right again i'm going to ask you to for a definition of neuroethics but before that maybe we should tell our audience that you also have a website and in the website you have a summary of each chapter uh, plus some questions for each chapter which is a great conversation starter if people want to teach this book to uh to a class and i feel that it's it i i found the book really really accessible despite the fact that you talk about some complicated concepts so i guess even it's even very very useful for high school students who want to uh, if, if there's a philosophy class in high schools, I, don't know, uh, I think the teachers can easily use this book and even just simply use the questions in, in the classes to start discussions. But if you'd like to talk about that, uh, your, your website, more than welcome to do so. But uh, uh, but it would also be great if we could talk about uh, neuroethics. What what We have I mean, heard about medical ethics, but what is neuroethics? Because uh, previously we had this field bioethics. Is it similar, different? Mm.
1: Yeah. So I do have a, a webpage for the book, partly because it it was students I had in mind. You know, I thought, I want this to be something that's not just read by other researchers, uh, but I also wanted it to not just be accessible to other ethicists, but also people who are in neuroscience may have no philosophy background uh, at all either. So I'm trying, it's almost overly ambitious, trying to make sure that I can make it readable and understandable for a very wide audience. Uh, but that was my main strategy, was to center it around cases, real cases. Um, there's sometimes a tendency, I think, in neuroethics to think about the far future and you know some kind of science fiction scenarios. But you know there are plenty of really interesting cases that have happened in the recent past that we can talk about that illustrate all of these issues in neuroethics. So, I mean, neuroethics is a big field. It's really just the study of ethical issues that are raised by neuroscience. And neuroscience is a massive field. Uh, it includes both just starting to understand how the mind works, but also huge areas of medicine, neurology, uh, people who are studying Alzheimer's. And we're really just trying to understand what are some of the ethical issues that are raised by the practice of neuroscience, but also what is neuroscience telling us about classical questions in ethics? So it's somewhat similar to bioethics or medical ethics. It's kind of like bioethics for the brain. And we're, we're looking at the same kinds of questions. You know, what are some moral problems that might arise when we start tweaking with people's brains? But what's fun about neuroethics, to me especially, is that it's not just those kinds of questions. It's also these other kinds of issues that are raised by what neuroscience is discovering. You know, neuroscience is promising to uncover, you know, the mysteries of the mind and, and figure out whether we do have free will. Uh, but these are questions that are classical issues in in moral philosophy. And so we can also have roughly think of half of neuroethics is trying to think about what is neuroscience telling us about some of these big issues that we've had about, you know, do we have free will? Can people be held morally responsible and also questions about the origins of our moral judgments you know where do they come from uh how do we, we form our moral values in the first place and neuroscience is starting to help us answer some of those questions
2: and, uh, can you talk about the case study in in that first chapter uh, kevin's case is uh, studying his brain surgery mm-hmm.
1: yeah that that really illustrates i think both of these yeah. kinds of questions nicely because uh, they're kind of intertangled um, so so kevin is a case of a man who got arrested for downloading child pornography and sadly that sort of thing is not exactly uncommon but what makes kevin's case interesting is that this happened after he had brain surgery it was actually the second time that he had brain surgery and so he had epilepsy all throughout his life since he was a a young child and it was so problematic that he had to do something about it he actually got into a car accident once lost his license so he had portions of his brain removed uh, from his temporal lobe that didn't quite work so they did it again and removed even more and then after that he noticed that he started having these sorts of really unusual sexual interests and desires and it just kind of went down this spiral so that not long after the surgery he's finding that he's interested in really you know illicit kinds of sexual activity and and downloading uh illegal pornography now there's two kinds of questions we can ask there. one is is Kevin really responsible then for his crime because, you know, it was the result of neurosurgeons cutting out portions of his brain. At least that seems quite plausible to to understand that that was a causal um, factor in his, in his crime. And actually his defense team did argue that. And his neurologist defended his position on that saying that he wasn't fully in control. Now the judge didn't ultimately believe it because he actually didn't download the pornography while he was at work, just at home. So they thought really he has some sort of control here. Um, but there are other questions, like more clinical kinds of questions too, about when is it okay to remove portions of patients' brains? Uh, this can really have profound effects on a patient's personality and could potentially even drive them to commit crimes. So there are these two kinds of questions. here, you know, What is the neuroscience telling us about ethical question, questions about free will? for example but also is this really ethical to be doing in the first place
2: and uh just to go back to the previous point you mentioned about making the book more accessible to students I think one of the good things about the book is that you're broken into several so we have chapters and also sub chapters if that's the right terminology to use Mm -hmm. with questions which makes it really really easy to follow the argument and I'm not going to ask you if judge was right or wrong here because that's i don't think that's the point of philosophy at this point but that reminds me of another question which will bring up uh which i'll bring up later on because you talk about um different medical procedures or surgeries or even stimulants or drugs to 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 change people's personality maybe and then you talk about several risks associated with that but i'll bring up that question later on what you just told me about the brain surgery and um and, uh, and if people have control over the actions, it, mm-hmm. that's something you also pick up in the other chapter where you talk about free will. And part of the argument is that, well, some of our actions are governed by our unconscious. So if that's so, can we totally reject the idea of uh, free will? Uh, is there consensus there among neuroscientists? And then what does it tell us about the role of human agency where does, what is the position of neuroscientists, let's say on the idea of human agency?
1: Yeah, I think there is a growing consensus about the role of the unconscious, which is that yeah, most of our decisions are influenced heavily by unconscious forces in our minds, you know things that we're not fully aware of. That's at least one thing that Freud got right. Uh, he got many things wrong, I think but um, that general idea it certainly seems to be pretty vindicated by modern neuroscience. And so there is this idea that, well, maybe your conscious decisions aren't playing as big of a role as you think. And we tend to identify ourselves with our conscious decisions, our conscious thoughts. And so you might think, well, I'm not really in control here. If it's mostly you know, these things I'm not aware of, then you know I, insofar as I'm this conscious part of me, is not really in control. Now, that is something of consensus among scientists, but then Whether that means we have free will or not is this more philosophical question. And my own view is that it doesn't mean that we have to give up on free will. Maybe it's a little bit different than we thought it was. Maybe, you know, we have to kind of slightly revise our thinking about it. But I think of it as like uh, solidity. So we found out through science that a lot of objects that seem solid are mostly empty space. And there's a lot of gaps between the different atoms and all of that. And so maybe you might think of it as mostly empty space. So this table here um, that my computer's on, mostly empty space. Does that mean that there's no such thing as solidity? Um, I don't think so. It just seems like it's a little bit different than we thought it was. Similarly, you might say, well, okay, so our free choices, they're heavily influenced by unconscious factors, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean we don't have free will. And the analogy I like to make is with a uh, corporation. Uh, so we think of CEOs as kind of central to the identity of a corporation, but I think it's kind of a mistake to think that they really are the corporation. Uh, Amazon isn't Jeff Bezos. Uh, Amazon can get a different CEO. Uh, he certainly plays an important role. He uses this kind of central figure that can shape the corporation. But I think that our conscious minds are kind of like that too. It's true that you know, our conscious mind isn't always in control. Uh, but hey, Jeff Bezos isn't always in control of Amazon. There's lots of other things going on that he's not aware of. Uh, yeah, he's still partly responsible for running the agency. And we still say that the agency as a whole is not really just him, but it's all these different workers and managers. And it's really complex. I don't really know what the identity of a corporation is exactly. That's another philosophical question. But I think that our minds can be viewed somewhat similarly. That just because our conscious decisions don't always play the role that we thought it did, um, maybe that just means we need to rethink of ourselves as, as not just our conscious selves. Uh, we we are everything. You know, I have all kinds of unconscious things going on in my mind, uh, but that's me too.
2: And and getting this discussion, uh, you have another case study, uh, Weinstein, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about that uh, case study too?
1: Sure. So this is uh, Herbert Weinstein not to be confused with Harvey Weinstein, uh, very different cases. Uh, so, And they're pronounced differently, apparently. So Weinstein uh, was an ad executive in Manhattan. This was in, uh, let's see, the 90s. And it, by all accounts, he seemed like a, a pretty calm, kind of rational guy, not particularly aggressive. Uh, but one day, and he's this guy's in his 60s, uh, one day he got into an argument with his wife and it got pretty heated. Reportedly, she scratched him in the face, Um, He uh, reacted to that pretty extremely, strangled her to death and then pushed her out of their 12-story apartment in an attempt to make it look like a suicide. Now, somebody on the street saw this happen. So when police actually got there, they immediately thought of uh, Weinstein as a a suspect. And it was kind of immediately noticeable that he was acting in some weird ways. He didn't seem all that concerned that he was a suspect. His emotional reaction to the whole thing, the death of his wife and being a suspect, seemed weird. He's kind of emotionally flat. And eventually his defense team thought, eh, maybe we should, you know, get a neurologist in here and see what's going on. And so they did do brain scans and they found that he had this large cyst uh, pressing on his frontal lobe. And if you look at the brain scans, it looks like this big, you know, huge dark spot on his frontal lobe, which is is really important for decision making and emotion regulation. So they thought, well, look, you know, he, this is partly due to his cyst. You know, there's something going on in his brain that caused him to be unable to control his behavior properly. And so his defense team actually did argue. It, this is one of the first times that that neuroimaging was used to try to reduce the uh, murder sentence. Um, not, It's the first time that it was clearly used and potentially effective because the district attorney, the prosecutor actually got really scared by you know, the existence of this huge cyst in, in the, um, the defendant, that they, they settled for a lesser charge. They settled for manslaughter. So it's not that the brain imaging actually like went to trial and influenced the jury, but they were worried about it. So they they agreed on manslaughter. So a really important case in the history of neuro law and it illustrates these kinds of issues where, you know, it does kind of make us question uh, if, if our behavior is really just determined by what's going on in our brains, maybe even abnormal things like cysts growing in there, then, you know, do we really have free will and how can we draw a distinction between somebody like Weinstein who happens to have a cyst and some other kind of criminal who doesn't maybe have a cyst, but they do have an abnormal brain. Um, Psychopaths, for example, do have um, abnormalities in their brains. They're, they're pretty well known and yet uh, we hold them accountable. So this is another key area of neuroethics trying to figure out, you know, what is it? that we can use as an excuse, uh, not just for criminal liability, but just more generally for responsibility and free will.
2: Um, and uh, that reminds me actually of a, uh, a video, a lecture that I saw some years ago uh, by Robert Sapolsky, if I'm not mistaken, and also some of the conversations. I think before we started recording the interview, I told you about uh, some of my friends who were doing evolutionary psychology and I could be wrong so I'm just posing this question uh that I heard that there are some at least with the lecture that I listened to so I think the argument that Sapolsky was making that all our actions are sort of governed by DNA and if you go back into our genetic uh history you can say well there was something somewhere that happened that can sort of be accountable for our actions today but then he was he didn't make any comments about because he, he he just Said that I don't know if we should make any comments about our responsibility towards our action, whether we are innocent or guilty. So, the question I have if uh, our thoughts are governed by our actions, are governed by unconscious, if we can kind of attribute them to genes or some abnormalities, such as the case we just mentioned, can we? completely dismiss what let's say what are the implications for our personality our responsibilities towards our actions
1: right yeah and that's another area i think where we can talk about some consensus among Mm -hmm. neuroscientists and really just um you know psychologists as well is that it's true that much of our mental propensities our personalities and um you know our values are heritable to some degree like most things, really. And it's true that we do have a lot of heritability. You can you can study this through uh, twins, for example. You can see twins who are reared in different um, environments and see what contribution their genes make to things like their personality. And it does play a role. It's not everything. So there's a lot of room for experience and decisions that somebody makes over the course of their life. But I'm not sure that it really does matter when it comes to to free will and responsibility. Here's Now we start getting to these philosophical and moral questions. And I just suppose that all of our uh, psychological tendencies are heritable. Suppose that you know I, I get these basic kinds of values and personality traits from birth, and they really just shape all of the future interactions and choices that I have. Uh, I'm not sure that it makes a difference necessarily. There's this great line from the show Fleabag. I don't know if you've ever heard of the show Fleabag. It's, uh, it's it's pretty good. And there's this character who says, I'm not a bad guy. I've just got a bad personality. It's not my fault. And, and it just seems laughable because it's silly to kind of act like, well, if I didn't control where my personality came from, then I'm not responsible. And I think similarly, even if, um, you know, all of our personality comes from, from our DNA, it doesn't necessarily get us off the hook, I think. And, and really in reality, uh, not all of it does come from our DNA for sure but we are who we are. And just like going back to that kind of corporation analogy, uh, it doesn't necessarily matter you know, how Amazon got formed. If it's currently a bad company, a corrupt company, or if it's currently a good one, uh, then we hold it accountable. It is an agency. And uh, like, like those kinds of corporations, we are agents and we are complex beings that are made up of unconscious kinds of processes and ones that are heritable, that are part of our DNA. Um, but we, we've got what we've got. We've got the cards that were dealt and we can be held accountable, I think, for the, for those sorts of decisions we make uh, with those kinds of psychological tendencies. So I think that even though there's a consensus about what contributes to our decisions and behavior, there are all these remaining questions about, well, what is free will? What does that have implications for responsibility? And in my own views, I'm more optimistic. I tend to think that, well, this doesn't show that there's a death of free will, or that it doesn't make sense to hold anybody responsible. But uh, that's actually not necessarily the majority position. There are many neuroscientists, um, people like Sapolsky, I think, who who might push this line a little more saying, "Eh, it doesn't really make sense to hold people accountable. Uh, I've got a friend who's in neuroscience and psychology down the road here, uh, and she's actually written on some of this, partly in light of the neuroscience research, and she thinks no, it makes no sense to hold people accountable, uh, given that all of their actions are determined by activity in their brains. Some of it's through their DNA, some of it's their past experiences, doesn't matter, they didn't control any of that, they're not responsible. Um, But my own view is that well, we can maybe at least revise our sense of what it is to be a free agent. Uh, and part of the book is really trying to develop a different picture of human agency in light of neuroscience to suggest that maybe it's a little bit different than we thought it was, um, but there's there's a robust sense of agency there. We have a lot of control over our actions, and you know we do have some role for decisions and experience and our conscious thoughts.
2: And uh, there is a term I use in your book, epiphenomenalism, if I'm pronouncing it. I, I practice it a lot to make sure that I don't get it wrong. <laughs> what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It actually comes from just the general like philosophy of mind, not necessarily ethics or neuroethics. It's this idea that an epiphenomenon is something that is just a kind of an effect of a system, but it's not a causal part of the process. So the standard kind of example is, is to think about some steam coming off of, say, a pot of water. The steam is just an epiphenomenon. That is, it's just an effect of the process of boiling, but the steam doesn't cause the boiling. Uh, if, if a young child thought that the steam was somehow causing it, you'd say, no, 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 that's, that's not right. It's just like an effect of it. And that would be an epiphenomenon. And some neuroscientists, uh, psychologists really do think that our conscious thoughts are always epiphenomena. That is, they're just kind of effects of what the unconscious mind is already doing. So the idea is that, well, maybe some of our decisions um, seem like they're driven by our conscious thoughts and, and choices. but really that just kind of happens as an, as an effect of the unconscious mind uh, making those decisions already. There's this famous study from back in the 80s by uh, Benjamin Lebetz, and there's been a lot of replications of it later in different contexts. But he had participants do like a really simple kind of procedure. He just wanted them to to lift their hand up, like flip their wrist, whenever they happen to feel like it. And there are other ones that involve um, different kinds of tasks, like pressing a left button or a right button. But basically, just whenever you happen to feel like it, make this simple choice. And then they measure what's going on in the brain. Labette did EEG, so he's just looking at brain waves. And then other people have done uh, fMRI and looking at brain activity um, through blood flow. And what Labette found was that basically, there's this kind of activity that's well-known in... um, Uh, neuroscience research it's this this readiness potential and it seems to arise right before there's a motor movement like moving your hand flicking your wrist and it it arises before this is what he found that arises before people are even aware that they chose to move so it's as if the brain is already planning and ramping up activity to move their hand before and this is you know milliseconds you know like 500 milliseconds before but that's a it's a long time in, in the brain. Uh So that's that's way before they're actually thinking of it consciously that I want to move my hand. There's this activity in the brain that, that's starting it. So it's those kinds of findings that suggest to people that maybe our unconscious mind is really uh, driving things, really the star of the show. And then our conscious decisions and thoughts are really just after the fact. And it's a way of us trying to tell a story to ourselves, you know, maybe i I decided to press the left button you know, for this reason, but really it was just a kind of unconscious process that we weren't aware of.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals. Slash NBN50 to get 50% off. And
2: uh, earlier in the interview, we talked about some medical procedures, or you had the case study of um, Kevin, you know, that the Mm -hmm. surgery kind of altered his behavior. But there are sometimes deliberate, let's say, interventions that we can undertake to maybe change people's personality for the better, as whatever that means, not that better. Mm -hmm. I think, is is that the definition of neuromodulation that you have in the book? Mm -hmm. And what are the risks associated because it sounds like a great thing we have criminals or bad people let's just give them some medicine uh or ta- take them through some medical procedures and it kind of reminded me of uh, Kub- uh kubrick's movie uh, yeah. uh what was it called uh clockwork orange uh, yeah right. so they were trying to kind of make him a better person <laughs> right. so, so, yeah. so what is neuromodulation and does it work? What are the risks, maybe philosophical and practical risks associated with it?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of things that could go under that category of neuromodulation that could include things like Kevin's brain surgery, where there's taking out portions of the brain, and that was to treat epilepsy. Uh, There are also cases of, I mean, really just any chemical that uh, is going to change brain activity. So even taking antidepressants could be Thought of as kind of neuromodulation it's changing neurotransmitters changing something about the person's brain the other thing that could be neuromodulation is brain stimulation and that too is actually really taken off in neurology and the the treatment for different kinds of disorders and you can think about different kinds of of brain stimulation some people might have heard of like transcranial direct current stimulation or um, TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation but the one that has been the most powerful, because those are all non-invasive, they're all just you know using magnetic fields outside of the brain. The one that's more invasive, but also more powerful is deep brain stimulation. And that involves surgery. So it involves you know, cutting holes into the skull to get um, electrodes down deep into the brain. And it's mostly done for movement disorders like Parkinson's. And it actually can have some pretty profound effects. It's, it's done here at UAB where I teach and on the medical side of campus. And there are videos that that UAB has, for example, of patients who have this, you know, in their heads this deep brain stimulator. And, you know, they've got Parkinson's, they have um, tremors in their hands, for example, they can't keep their hands still. You turn on the brain stimulator and their hand is still. And what's amazing with deep brain stimulation is that you can then also just turn it off on the fly. So you can do it remotely because there's a pulse generator that is actually sits usually under the patient's collarbone. It's kind of like a, a pacemaker for the brain. And they can turn it off. And you can see these videos of patients where now their hand starts shaking. They turn it on. They can hold it still. So it's really remarkable. It's, it's got great treatment applications. Now, there's all this hope that maybe this will be useful for other kinds of conditions, for psychiatric disorders, major depression, OCD, anorexia, uh, and, and that research is underway. Um, there might also be hope, this I think is much further off, for this kind of Kubrick style of trying to treat you know, criminals, um, say people who are maybe psychopaths of serious um, brain abnormalities, and, and there's really no treatment, no successful treatment for psychopathy. Um, people who are really diagnosed as as um uh, psychopaths or a severe form of antisocial personality disorder, there's really no treatment for them. And they usually just re-offend over and over and over. So it would be wonderful from that perspective, um, to to have some sort of direct brain treatment. There's nothing, as far as I know, that that seems to work. Um, but that might be a hope. Now, there's ethical issues there. You know, um, can you really change a person in that way? It shouldn't be more through their agency, right? Not forced on them. You know, just like forcing them to have some sort of um, brain stimulation or, or take some drug. But I, I think that this is something that we're going to start seeing more and more of. We're going to be seeing some more invasive brain um, modulation going on And mostly it's or- in order to treat patients with severe. Um, disorders, things like severe treatment-resistant Parkinson's, um, even major depression. There have been some studies out uh, showing that it can be effective for certain patients, especially as a kind of last resort when nothing else has worked. So I think we're going to be seeing more and more of it. The concern is, especially when it's patients who are freely choosing to do this because the risks um, are outweighed by the benefits, the concern is that the risks are not the same that we have for normal medical interventions. So when we're intervening on the body, that's not necessarily gonna change much about your personality or your values, but you start intervening on the brain and now you're not just, you know, say, risking uh, a blood clot or stroke. Um, you're also risking that this person's gonna be different. And there are plenty of cases like that in the deep brain stimulation literature. Uh, one of them that, that I mentioned very briefly in the book is is a guy, this is just, just a minor minor issue, uh, certainly not a bad side effect, but he suddenly developed after getting a deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's, developed a, an obsession with music with Johnny Cash. Uh, not a bad side effect. Uh, Johnny Cash is great, but there are other kinds of effects that can happen where they're more profound. Um, there are cases where this one uh, Dutch patient who had Parkinson's got deep brain stimulation, And they can also adjust sort of how intense it is. And in order to control his movement, because he had severe uh, movement problems, they had to crank up the deep brain stimulator so high that it actually made him manic. So he was actually engaging in reckless behavior, you know, like excessive gambling and that sort of thing. And they had to make a choice. You know, do we, do we, you know, can he choose just having severe movement limitations so that he's practically bedridden? Um, Or does he take uh, the the mania, which is, you know, a psychiatric condition? So there are real different kinds of side effects that arise when you start to mess with what I like to call the seed of the self. You know, the brain really is uh, where we get our self and our agency and our values. And so a lot of neuroethicists are concerned about those kinds of side effects of things like deep brain stimulation and other kinds of neuromodulation, including taking drugs like antidepressants. Um, but in general, my line in the book is that I'm a little less concerned about some of these things, um, but it is a major ethical issue in
2: neuroethics. And, and speaking of psychopaths, I guess you, you also had a case study in your book about the psychopath who broke into a house and even abducted and then murdered a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, the, that when you when in this chapter, you also talk about the idea of dynamic self. Mm. and what what do you mean by dynamic self? What is meant by that? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that the self can change quite radically, and yet you'll still be you. So a lot of people think, you know well, I'm kind of the same person over time. I don't change that much, at least not deeply or fundamentally. And I think it underlies a lot of concerns about, You know, things like deep brain stimulation that maybe if it changes me, you know, too much, then now I'm going to be a different person. And that's, that's somehow a problem, but I like to put this in perspective and think about the ways in which we change throughout normal life. There's this great concept of transformative experience from this philosopher, Lori Paul, and she's not thinking about neuroethics, but she has this idea that really we go through pretty major transformations in our lives uh, quite frequently. Her stock example is becoming a parent, and this has really resonated with me. I have a child. I changed a lot after becoming a parent, and I have different values, different preferences now. And yet, yeah, you know, I'm still the same person. It's not like we think of this as some big tragedy that I now have different values and preferences. Uh, and really, we all go through these kinds of things uh, quite often. Not everybody is a parent, but you know, all of us go through. Puberty, uh, which radically changes us. Uh, and we also have experiences like traveling abroad or tragedies like divorce or car accidents. And these all change us um, quite radically. So I, I become less concerned. I think, well, the self is rather dynamic. You know, we change quite a bit. It's a normal part of life. And so, although we need to factor in some of these potential changes to a patient's personality and values, I don't necessarily think that it's some special, deep, moral problem so i think as long as the you know the risks and the benefits of some sort of treatment are explained to a patient maybe it's okay if they have some deep change their personality their family might not like it you know their family might say who is this person uh which has happened with cases of of deep brain stimulation this you know spouse is like yeah i don't recognize this person so much anymore but hey that can happen with um lots of other life events as well
2: Uh, another very interesting argument in your book which i uh I hadn't really seriously thought about before reading a book was people who have some sort of a mental disorder or or some sort of a dis- disability when it comes to being held accountable for the actions we we normally tend to have more sympathy tend to have be more forgiving because of those uh, challenges they have but uh from a neuroethics perspective should they be equally accountable for their for 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 actions or Crimes they might commit? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think very firmly that it depends. That we just can't say as a blanket statement that if somebody has a mental disorder, then they should or should not be held accountable. Uh, maybe I'm something of a contrarian. I keep I keep pushing back against a lot of the a lot of the trends in neuroethics. But a lot of theorists do think, and, and a lot of ordinary people think, well, look, if somebody has a you know, can be categorized as having a, a mental disorder at least if it's maybe severe enough then you know they just should shouldn't be held accountable or maybe you have a staunch opposite position no they still should be held accountable and I think it just depends there are cases of people who have for example schizophrenia who you know have a lot of agency a lot of control over their lives one of my favorite examples is um, Ellen Sachs she has this great book and TED Talk she's a Distinguished Professor of Law at USC in Los Angeles, and she talks about how she has psychotic episodes. She has been, you know, committed to hospitals against her will, and it's been terrible, terrible experience for her. Um, and yet, you know, she has good times, and she can have a supportive environment where she can really thrive and be a successful, you know, professor uh, at a major institution. And so it just depends. There are cases of people who have schizophrenia, and it does have such effects on them and their lives that, you know, they don't have a lot of control. Uh, Maybe, you know, they can't be held accountable for a lot of their actions. Um, But I think it depends on the person. It also depends on the day. You know, there are good days and there are bad days. Uh, I think what we're learning a lot from the neuroscience is that every mental condition, mental difference exists on a spectrum. A lot of us have gotten comfortable with this idea that that autism uh, lies on a spectrum. But really every kind of neurological difference is like that. That the brain really is this, this wildly different kind of machine that can work differently for different people. And there are lots of different ways of existing as a human being with different brain activity. So there can be times when when people could be categorized by, you know, some sort of psychiatric manual as having a mental disorder. Whether that means they shouldn't be held accountable, I think is a very different kind of question. Um, and yet for a lot of people, these are sort of, they just overlap, you know, as if we should just look at whether they have a mental disorder. And so that should say something about their accountability. And more and more, I think if we just have to recognize that those categories are useful in some contexts, like for treatment and insurance billing purposes. But when it comes to say an actual court of law and you're trying to think through whether somebody should be held accountable for an action, then I think it just depends. And you've got to look at it case by case, which does seem to be how the law tends to operate. There are some people who have major psychiatric conditions who are held responsible for their actions. Um, Others, not so much. Uh, I get the two pairs of cases of Eddie Ray Routh, who was um, the the guy who got uh, convicted for killing the celebrated sniper um, there's this this movie all all about it, and uh, he had PTSD really severely, and and he killed um, this guy Chris Kyle who's the sniper, uh, killed him at a shooting range. They were going out together. He was trying to like help a fellow vet out, and they went to a shooting range. And Ralph, um, you know, he, he had PTSD, he got a little triggered, and he ended up killing him. So he was held accountable. Um, other cases, people do get, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity due to a mental health condition, and I think that's the way we should operate in ordinary life as well. We shouldn't say, "Look, so and so has schizophrenia, so and so, you know, has major depression, and so they are or are not responsible or in control of their lives." I think it depends, and there's a lot more agency and control and mental disorder than most of us recognize.
2: Uh- Another part of the book is about gut feelings. We are generally very, very skeptic of our gut feelings because they are based on just feelings, not really rationality or thoughts behind them. But you challenge this idea. Apparently there is some scientific evidence that we can that, that our gut feelings are reliable and cannot easily be dismissed. Um and I guess it also has uh, legal complications. I mean, if it comes to committing a crime, I right? just did that based on my gut feeling. So it can't really be dismissed. But anyway, that's a different thing. But can you talk about scientific evidence for gut feelings being rooted in some sort of rationality?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think that that's another area where you do get a lot of consensus in the science, but then what to do about it is not necessarily so clear. So that's where you get all these philosophical and moral questions. So it's, it's clear from the science that Gut feelings do play a big role in normal decision-making. And, and yet, as you say, we're often skeptical about gut feelings. Um, I kind of came of age politically uh, during the war in Iraq and 9-11. George Bush was president of the United States. And I remember he was often ridiculed for you know trusting his gut. right? Uh, Stephen Colbert coined this term truthiness to try to kind of mock Uh, President Bush's uh, reliance on his gut feelings, like it just seems true. It's got this truthiness to him. And it's true that our gut feelings can lead us astray, but there's this growing consensus that actually they're just really part of our normal ways of deciding just what to do about anything, not just about ethics or some big political decision, but just think about all the decisions we make at the grocery store, for example. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of apples. I try to get apple a day, keeps the neurologist away, right? Um, so yeah, I'm always that there, I choose which kind. And there's all these apples now available. When I was a kid, it was you know, pretty simple. There's like, you know, just red delicious and, and, and whatever. But now we've got all kinds of variants and you gotta make decisions all the time at the store, like which of all these many options am I gonna plot for? And there are patients actually who do have damage to a certain part of the frontal lobe that seems to be crucially involved with gut feelings with gut feelings in decision-making. And what happens to them is that they do struggle to make decisions, even simple decisions about like which apples to buy at the grocery store. So much so that they'll get distressed about it and and it can bring them to tears because they just can't make a decision. They can sit there and, you know, enumerate all the pros and cons. They can think through it consciously about, well, there's some reason these ones are organic. uh, You know, these ones seem to really be uh, tasty last time but they don't have that gut feeling of like, well, which one do I kind of just feel more pulled towards? And that causes a lot of problems. They they really just can't make ordinary decisions that all of us make, you know, constantly through one trip to the grocery store. So that's been a a big consensus. And it suggests, I think more generally, that gut feelings are important, even when it comes to big moral decisions, you know, about whether to to go to war um, or, you know, about whether to, you know, tell somebody the truth or be honest in a certain situation. We have a certain gut feeling, you know, we don't just say, this is dishonest. I won't say it. We said, well, you know, you kind of have some pull about whether maybe it's okay to tell this white lie or not. And we are distrustful a lot of those gut feelings, but I think that the growing consensus suggests that maybe we shouldn't be so fast. It's true. Gut feelings can lead us astray. We should be careful But they're actually just part of how the brain works. It's just part of how we learn over time. You know, if you have lots of experience with something, you just kind of get this intuitive feel for, you know, how it works. Um, I I play guitar sometimes, at least, uh, you know, whenever I can find the chance nowadays. And, you know, I've played for, for many years now. And so if I'm trying to figure out a new piece of music, then I do kind of have a bit of a gut feeling about, you know, maybe where, which chord it might be or which, which fret it might be. And it's not like that comes out of nowhere. That comes from years and years of trial and error experience. And that's really kind of how our gut feelings tend to work. They really are based on prior experiences that we've had. So they're not just random and it doesn't mean that they're perfectly reliable, but they are grounded in real trial and error experience. And some of those experiences are just ones that you've had yourself, but to get back to your um, discussion of genes and all of that and evolutionary psychology, there's also a lot of gut feelings that we have not through our own personal experience, but through our evolutionary history, um, or through the cultural norms that we've absorbed by being raised, you know, in a certain culture. But that too is based on trial and error experience by people in that culture people are ancestors from many many years ago maybe even you know hundreds of thousands of years ago and these are experiences a certain way that are that are shaping you know the gut feelings that we have today they don't necessarily always get it right um but the idea is that they they come from somewhere uh and so we can at least say that they we got to take them seriously and when it comes to ethics if you don't have gut feelings Uh, you're going to look more like um, a psychopath, really. They do have a lack of morally relevant gut feelings like compassion, remorse. And when you take those away, um, they
2: make pretty bad moral decisions.
1: So overall, I think gut feelings do have a really important role to play. Um, But of course, reasoning does as well.
2: And uh, in your last chapter, you you talk about biases and prejudice. What is? And you make a distinction between motivated reasoning and biased reasoning. What do you mean by these two uh, terminologies?
1: Yeah, maybe this is where um, gut feelings and reasoning really do start to to clash, right? Um, so we've got reasoning we think of as well. You're just kind of trying to factor in the evidence and follow it where it leads. Motivated reasoning is where your reasoning about that stuff gets pulled by your motivations, by your Desires by your even values. So wishful thinking, willful ignorance, confirmation bias—these are all forms of motivated reasoning. You know, I think, well, you know, maybe it's okay for me to, to you know, not go running today, or to, you know, like have an extra piece of cake. Uh, you know, I think of some reason for it, like, yeah, you know, I, I kind of walked a lot yesterday, or you know, I kind of deserve this extra piece of cake. That's reasoning. It's coming up with reasons, but it's motivated by, well, I really just don't want to have to go running, or I really just want to have another piece of cake. So it's sort of like pulled by your motivations. And I think this is another consensus among scientists is that this is a pervasive feature of the human mind. This is almost just kind of how our minds work by default. Uh, Reasoning didn't really seem to evolve as a capacity for figuring out the truth. It can do that in the right circumstances, but there's a growing kind of consensus that maybe reasoning evolved more to convince other people and ourselves of certain positions. And that can be heavily influenced by what we want to be true or what our tribe thinks is true. You know, what my political coalition thinks is true. And so it can be kind of, yeah, it can be dangerous. It can be something that leads us astray for sure. And I think it's something that actually influences even um, scientific investigations and even neuroscience itself. So it's funny because you know, neuroscience is showing us that we engage in a lot of motivated reasoning. And yet um, we can also see that it reflects back that there's also motivated reasoning in science itself, including neuroscience. So I give you an example of uh, one of my favorite examples of, of this in, in neuroscience is this um this uh, study that some researchers did with a dead salmon. So uh, these researchers around 2010 they started thinking, you know I th- we think there's something going wrong in a lot of neuroimaging studies like fMRI studies. They think there's some sort of you know calculation error that's that's leading to a lot of um, false positives that people are saying, oh, we found some sort of interesting brain activity when really maybe they didn't. And they thought maybe there's this sort of statistical correction that wasn't being done. And it's kind of a standard one that everyone should know about, but everyone was kind of missing it. It's this um, correction for multiple comparisons, but the details don't don't really matter. And so what they did is they they tried to show this, uh, demonstrate it in a very humorous way. So they put a dead Atlantic salmon into the brain scanner and they tried to make it just like a normal study, a normal experiment. And they said, okay, we're going to instruct the salmon to, you know, imagine some other people's feelings and then you know, compare that to the activity in the scanner to when they're not imagining you know other people's feelings. And using the standard methods of neuroscience, neuroimaging at the time, they found that there was some uh, significant difference in brain activity in the dead fish, uh, which something must have gone wrong. And they point out that it's because there's this error in uh, the statistical analyses that they were doing. And this is just one example of how there's this it's, its kind of willful ignorance that a lot of people should have known that they're making this mistake, but you know they kind of just let it slide and didn't really think much about it. Because if they did, then it was more likely that they would find interesting results in their research. So if they failed to make this correction, then it was more likely that they could get a paper published, more likely that they could advance their career. And so that motivation leads them to, you know, be a little bit more sloppy uh, with their reasoning. And I do think that this partly explains um, the major replication crisis that we've got going in in psychology, but also neuroscience and many other areas of science. And I think we just have to acknowledge it and see that this is part of the process. It's part of how the human mind works. And so we need to be clear eyed. Uh, and aware that, it, that it's going on try try to avoid it as much as
2: we can and, and that was to me a very interesting point i was actually talking to a historian of science uh last week and and the last question i asked was the idea of objectivity in science well of course well yeah science is objective and it was actually a discussion between humanities and science because humanities we generally say well it's objective it's just uh how good or bad your argument is but with science because you have this scientific method there is some objectivity to it but again as you just mentioned uh no science is completely objective there are personal biases at the same time you know it depends where you get the funding there might be some political ideology in that as well but but it doesn't mean we can completely dismiss science as being subjective it's uh I guess we just need to 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 sort of accept that well, the arguments we make no matter what methodology we use are somehow governed by our brain activities and yeah there's a little bit of subjectivity in there but it doesn't undermine the the idea of objective science
1: i think that's right uh, it's it's you can't get pure objectivity mm. i think in any human endeavor there's just going to be certain biases certain um, values that are going to shape that investigation but yeah not not all hope is is lost i, I think that if we realize this is just how human reasoning works, uh, we can just see that it's something that happens even when we do produce amazing knowledge, um, like in science. Uh, it's one of our, our best tools for producing knowledge. And there are ways that we can set things up to try to make it more likely to produce knowledge. And I think that you know one of the ways we do that is by just realizing that we are all you know, self-interested actors in some ways. We're trying to push our own pet theories. We're trying to get grant funding. We're trying to get papers published. But out of that network, we can get um, a competition of ideas that can lead to, you know, progress and and knowledge, especially if we, you know, make sure that the incentives are are set up right. We try to avoid conflicts of interest and and make sure that, you know, we have an environment where um, the best ideas Win out, even if they're ultimately driven by people uh, who have their own motivations for for developing that kind of research. And there, there are a lot of people who think that's just that's just how reasoning works. It works better together. Uh, if you just reason by yourself, then you know you're going to be very biased. It's just your own kind of um, pursuit. But the more that you can have a collective effort, uh, the more that those biases can wash out. Not perfectly, not 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 forever. That you're going to have pure objective science. Uh, but at least we're going to have some progress and moving in the right direction and gaining more and more knowledge. So, so I think the more we can do that with, with neuroscience, the better, because we know very little about the brain at this moment. And there's a lot more to learn. And I think we have to be especially humble when it comes to neuroscience, because we're still trying to figure out how these neurons firing somehow you know, give rise to, this rich experience that we have and, and our moral values, but if we're clear-eyed about it, I think we can, you know, be humble going into it and, and make sure that we're asking these kinds of ethical questions, you know, uh, before they before they come up and making sure that we're using sort of philosophical critical thinking to make sure that we're not uh, being too gullible uh, when we're excited about new new discoveries in, in neuroscience. Uh,
2: uh, as a last question, is there any other book or project you're working on currently?
1: <laughs> I am, although it has uh, uh, very little to do with neuroethics. Uh, so, so as I said, I'm really interested in social change more generally. Mm. And one of the things I'm thinking about a lot now that I think that we're going to look back on pretty soon and think, you know, this was a moral failing, and and we've now made improvements on it is the the way that we treat the animals that we eat. So I think that factory farming is going to be looked back on as something that we was a big mistake. In, in modern society. And so I'm interested in, you know, how we can make progress on that, how people think about that issue, um, what's going on in our heads. And and maybe no surprise, I think that um, there's a, a lot of motivated reasoning that's going on when it comes to uh, the justification mm-hmm. of the status quo of, of sort of Willful ignorance saying, you know, I'm going to not really pay attention to how these animals are treated on factory farms in order to continue to, you know, eat the the tasty meat that I like to have. So I've been working with a collaborator on this um, project and, and we were trying to develop this idea of uh, reducitarianism, the idea that maybe you don't have to completely eliminate animal products from your diet you don't have to be a vegan but maybe it's justifiable to say to make more progress on something like factory farming maybe it's justifiable to just try to continue to reduce your consumption of those problematic products Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, professor joshua may thank you very much for this wonderful conversation and i do like to repeat again that uh, it's a highly accessible book and the good thing about the book is the questions and the way you have uh the, the the format of the book in terms of having chapters and small sub chapters which is which is which makes it very very easy to teach and when you said that at the beginning that what you had in mind was teachers and how to teach the book when I I hadn't thought about that but when I was reading the book I said yeah this is a book that could easily be taught in a high school class uh, especially with the cases studies you have introduced there thank you very much for this conversation really enjoyed it
1: thank you so much for having me and thanks for your interest in the book